JJ Mrazdek is a resident physician in pathology, and aside from playing the accordion and having three cats, so she aims to have six at some point, she is also autistic. JJ, I am so glad that you're joining us and you're going to be sharing with us how you succeeded in the very neurotypical world of medicine, despite being very neurodivergent yourself. JJ, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, JJ, one of the things I find fascinating is that your first career before medicine was actually in social work. And that kind of explodes one of the stereotypes of autism that is most commonly held, which is that autistic people don't have empathy, can't understand other people's emotions, and therefore one would imagine that a social worker would be the last possible career for an autistic person. How did you end up there? Yeah, it's a common misconception for sure. And admittedly, it's one I would have had before I was diagnosed because I wasn't diagnosed until I was 32. So before then, it wasn't really on my radar in the same way. And I would say I arrived there because I have, I do feel like I have a deep sense of empathy and wish to connect with other people. And that's really where that was rooted for me. Ultimately, I was drawn to medicine because I felt it provided more opportunities for lifelong learning. But uh, I did enjoy social work. And I think it's um, neurodivergent people have just as great of a chance at succeeding in social work as um, neurotypical people. So I find that a very interesting stereotype, for sure. You can be an autistic success in social work. Now, you hadn't studied science in a traditional way. So when you got to your first year of med school, that apparently was a little bit of a learning curve. Yeah, it was very difficult. So I didn't study for the MCAT in the typical way that most people would. I gave myself a week and only really intended to write seriously for the reading comprehension section. And there were two schools in Canada that were amenable to that strategy as they only really care about that section for admissions. So but you were being highly strategic. I was. I, I honestly didn't want to study for the whole MCAT, which probably is the reason why I ended up having to take a year off between first and second year, because I just did not have the foundation of science that would be helpful going into medical school. There are plenty of non-traditional students who get into medical school and do fine, but they wrote the MCAT and they gained something for from studying for the MCAT, whereas I sort of used the strategy to get in. And for me, it feels like it's so easy to get into med school because it was such an impulse. Even though I thought about applying my whole life and when I was a little girl, it's what I wanted to do. The actual year that I decided to apply and the way it came about, I was literally just sitting there on my laptop one night going, hmm, I should apply. <laughs> it just like popped into my head. I should go to medical school. And then I saw, oh, I have a week left to write this exam if I want to apply for this fall. So I should do that. Okay, so I need to take a sick day. Okay, let's make sure I can get that. And there was no MCAT spots available in my city. So I was like, well, if a spot opens up, that's a sign. I'm supposed to go to med school. And then a spot opened up. So um, anyways, I'm being tangential here. But yeah, it was very last minute. And uh, when I got in, it was the best moment of my life, I think. I'll never forget that happiness. But then when I started, it became clear <laughs> what the benefit, I would say, of having that science background would have been because first year was extraordinarily challenging for me and even more challenging because the teaching was done in a way that I think is geared towards the neurotypical through social mechanisms like 
group discussions, two hour group discussions about medical cases where I don't learn socially. So I'm not going to take in anything just sitting here listening to a group and taking part in a discussion about this case give me the information i need i will go and independently learn it and just like leave me alone and let me do my thing <laughs> that's how i feel unfortunately it doesn't work because there's a lot of mandatory components in med school you have to attend and you know same thing with normal um didactic teaching lectures it's just it's not easy to be a neurodivergent person and have to attend all those mandatory things that you're really not getting anything out of and then have to go home in the evening and relearn everything yourself while your classmates are like, okay, now it's the evening. I can take some time off and maybe study for an hour or that sort of thing. So then I took a year off between first and second year med school to really do it my own way and uh, study independently. Hang on. So when you say doing it your own way, so when I was in law school, I realized that Unlike my uh, classmates, just like you say, I couldn't learn in lectures and I hated small groups, but the only way I learned really was reading with a highlighter. That's it. That's the only thing that worked. What did you do during your one year off to get yourself up to spec on the science of medicine? Prior to medical school, I also read with a highlighter and that was the only thing that worked for me. Once I got to med school, just because the volume and the pace is so astronomical, it's just, it's material is learned so fast you don't really have the time to just read things and highlight them because in order to actually retain that i would need to go and over and like reread it and reread it until it's just in my brain uh, i can't just read something once and it's like there at least yeah i mean it's just some people can but i don't have that ability um and so i gravitated to a flashcard app called anki which is really popular with med students and is based on space repetition of information active recall there's an algorithm where you're seeing these flashcards um, in intervals, depending on how long you've known the piece of information, um, and that sort of thing. So if you get a card, right, you'll see it again the next day. And then if you get it right again, you'll see it in three days and it pushes it back and back and back. So, um, so how many did you learn of the flashcards in the, in the one year I learned 30,000 flashcards and I came back and it was amazing and it, it worked. And, you know, from an academic perspective, the rest of med school was, was pretty good. There were still challenges, uh, in a, from a non-academic point of view, but as far as my performance went, I was really pleased with how far I had come. Did your superiors in rotations see the improvement? Yeah, there was um, a senior resident on internal medicine who told me I was the smartest med student he'd ever met. Top 1%, I believe were his words, top 1% of med students. So that made me feel really good. Um, and, you know, I'm finally starting to lean into embracing it being okay to like, even not brag about that, but to own it and be like, yeah, I'm smart. It's fine. <laughs> you know what Americans say, if, if it ain't bragging, if you can actually do it. <laughs> yeah, right. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> so when talking about the, the hardships of that first year, um, you seem to have had the experience growing up that if you work hard enough, you usually manage to achieve what you set out to do. And from you, what you described, that first year of medicine, I think you mentioned one exam in particular that turned that impression on its head. Yeah, I studied as hard as I possibly could. I worked just as hard as I would have for any exam in my past, you know, three degrees that I did before medicine. And I failed the exam by one point. And so that really was earth shattering for me. It was really, I just couldn't believe it. And, you know, there were other moments in my clinical rotations, the second half of med school, where you're rotating in various specialties that 
perhaps my academic performance was fine because it was after my year off. But then there were social difficulties where, uh, again, in spite of my best effort, things were just not working. And then that led to me ultimately getting diagnosed with autism in the last few months of med school. How has that diagnosis overall, good thing, bad thing, who knows? It was definitely a good thing. I, but, you know, I think probably for any newly diagnosed adult person, I started to really re-examine every social interaction in my life that had ever gone awry. <laughs> and just gone, oh, like, I just see it differently now. Or like, oh, that's embarrassing. Or <laughs> it's just, it's like this glass breaking moment and you're like the world is not what I thought it was and so that was a lot to adjust to and I, th I think I'm still adjusting because it's only been a year and a few months so I think I'm still in early phases <laughs> the, yeah. the sentence that I hear often from late diagnosed people and it's certainly the one that went through my head was all of a sudden my whole life made sense yeah I think I've said those exact words for sure uh, every every difficulty or challenge I'd ever had, like even, even my first year of medical school, I'd always ask myself, well, why did my colleagues who didn't have a science background, why did they not come to a point where they simply couldn't go on like I did? And had, why didn't they have to take a year off? They weren't being stressed in the same manner that I was. They were being stressed in other ways, right? Like this is the point I make about my partner, who's also a physician. And he has throughout the phases of med school and residency and training found it appropriately difficult, but not impossible. Um, and, and there were times in my training and there's still, those times are still happening that I feel, is this possible? And I'm still trying to <laughs> break down barriers. Like even for example, um, on pathology, you have what are called off service rotations in your first year. So it's like things that aren't pathology that you have to do four week rotations in. So like general surgery, um, what else? Um, obstetrics, radiology, pediatrics, hematology, infectious disease, that sort of thing. Cause it gives you a foundation. Then when you're no longer involved in direct patient care, you've had those experiences. And, uh, last month was my pediatrics rotation. And I thought that I'd pass the point of questioning, can I even get through this? Because pathology, the end result and the end specialty is going to be very um, welcoming to my needs, but I still have to get through this off service stuff. And there were so many things that happened in this pediatrics rotation that could have been prevented. Like I reached out to the rotation coordinators before it started. And I said, look, I'm on the spectrum. I really appreciate if you could put me in touch with the attending physician that is going to be my evaluator who I'm going to be working with because I need, I need to have a frank conversation with them that I'm autistic. And um, not only is direct patient care difficult for me, but children are uh, especially difficult with babies who are being seen. They're obviously going to cry and I don't like loud noises. Um, I need to, I need to talk to this person because my experience is if I don't, then I may end up in a situation where they don't know. And I seem unprofessional and they said, okay, we'll look into it. And they, they forwarded my email to the person who, was in charge of the rotation and he sent them an email back that was then forwarded to me. So he didn't even communicate directly to me, but in his forwarded email, he said, Oh, well we can accommodate her. And I just thought that's not reassuring. So I show up on day one. First thing they bring me to do is to examine a newborn baby who starts wailing. And I'm like, man, like I told you guys exactly what I needed. You, even though it wasn't even a, a big ask, 
you wouldn't give it to me. And then <laughs> now I'm in a position like exactly what I told you would happen is happening. And I had to stay there and try not to have a meltdown while this baby is screaming. And I'm listening to it with my stethoscope. So it's not just that I'm having to listen to it scream. It's also screaming like right into my ears. <laughs> so I, I was able to sort of compose myself and not lose control in the situation. But I just, I, when those things happen, they are so disempowering that I just, I prefer to avoid them than have to go through it. And then you see how hard it is for me. And then finally, then you believe me. Right. And there were other things too. So there was two weeks at the beginning of that rotation that were like outpatient clinics where you are seeing patients who are coming in for they're healthier patients, right? They're well child visits, um, six month baby checkups, et cetera. But then the other two weeks was called pediatric CTU. And this is like inpatient sick kids sort of thing. And, um, I suspected this rotation would be even more difficult for me just because it's, well, it's more intense kind of subject matter, right? These kids are a lot sicker. And I had reached out to the chief residents again, and I had tried explaining to them my situation. They were actually very lovely, but I showed up my first day and there was the senior resident I had spoken to, to try to sort of warn her that I am on the spectrum and this would be hard. It was a different person for that one, just that one day. She gave me seven patients to see in one hour. Like she said, from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., you go you go pre-round on these seven patients and then we'll meet back. And, and But you have to, here's the thing. Each time you go see a patient you've never seen before, you have to look them up in the system, understand what conditions they have, understand their course in hospital, what's happened. That's If they've been hospital for months, it's a lot harder to do that very quickly. And then you have to go in the room, talk to the patient, their parents, examine them, leave the room, and then like somehow remember that and formulate it in your brain. Now, in other adult inpatient medicine rotations that I've done in the past, you are given more than an hour to see your patients. It's more like you meet at 8 a.m., split up the list, and then from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., you'll have like four hours to see your patients. That I can do. I'm not sure why it's different on pediatrics, but they told me what I would have to do. And then furthermore, I said, and then you're expecting me then to see these seven patients with eight and a half minutes each for all that work. And then I have to go do an oral presentation where you stand in front of an entire medical team, including like um, allied health, like physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech language pathologists, nurses, um, all these different people, physicians, residents, and then present and say, hello, this is little Bobby. He's a four-year-old boy admitted with um, acute myeloid leukemia. I don't know, right? Like you're having to present and I don't have time to even write my note because you have to document every interaction, right? If you've written a note, then at least you can sort of just read it verbatim. But how am I supposed to? So I essentially, it's so embarrassing. I had a complete meltdown. I started sobbing. It was just me and the senior resident alone. I started panicking and sobbing. And once she realized, and I, I disclosed to her, I was autistic. She was like, oh, it's okay. You can only see, you, know, you can just see one. But by then I was so worked up that I couldn't come back down. I'm at a five out of five. I can't come down to a one or a two out of five, probably until this evening now. Like I need to go home and be by myself and deal with this feeling. Um, and I had to withdraw from the, the last two weeks of that rotation because my skills and what I have to offer aren't a good fit with what they're asking of me. And so that rotation is still up in the air. I don't know how, cause I still have two weeks to do. So I don't know what's happening with it, 
But like another, sorry to go on a, like a total rant here and not let you <laughs> get a word in, but I received an email yesterday from the person in charge of that rotation and they're like having meetings about it without me to discuss like how to move forward. I'm like, and you're not even soliciting my opinion because I've emailed them and said, I'd love to take part in this process. I have some suggestions for other ways I can meet my pediatric subject objectives. I can do more outpatient. Um, I did pediatrics in med school. I did it rurally at a small, in a small town called Lethbridge in Alberta. And I said, I could go back there easily and do two weeks there because I it's comfortable. I've done it. I know the routine. It's less volume. You have more time to see your patients. And I didn't hear back from the person in charge of the rotation. She didn't reply to my email. And then I find out from my program director in general pathology. Oh yeah. So this rotation person, like we met to discuss this and we'll let you know what the decision is. I'm like, why wasn't I there? <laughs> they don't like solicit the autistic person's input on like how to proceed with this. It's very frustrating. It's crazy. Cause it's yet again, the about autistic people without autistic people. So when you look at your life in general, at the perhaps slightly circuitous route that you've taken to get to pathology, but where you are now, in what ways has autism been a superpower? It certainly has influenced my focus and dedication toward the passions that I've chosen in life. Medicine is definitely the biggest one that I've pursued, although there are others, um, but I don't think I would feel the same level of focus or intensity toward what I'm doing if I were not on the spectrum. And, you know, as part of my diagnosis, I received all kinds of other testing, including IQ testing. I would never share that number because I think that's generally a really douchey thing to do. <laughs> you know, I don't think it would be there if I weren't autistic. I think part of that intelligence for me is it comes from how my brain is wired, I think. And part of that, that's part and parcel with my autism, you know. If, if my brain as a whole is autistic, then like that's, you know, my, my intelligence and my brain are um, kind of one and the same. Right. So I just I don't think I would be. the And, I'm, you know, I'm very proud of it. My dad is, I presume, on the spectrum. And he and I have talked about this a lot. And we think his dad was as well. So um, I'm very proud of that. You know, I'm very, very proud to have inherited that from my dad. And I see him, you know, as a very intelligent, capable person. And so. Um, I think that's a huge advantage for me, just being able to take ownership over that and be be proud of that and how that serves me in my everyday life. The intensity is something that people might perhaps expect of autistics, but what they don't necessarily expect is that we can often come up with solutions that no one else would have thought of because we don't, it's harder for us to accept things just because that's how they've been done and it's harder for us if we see something illogical to keep our mouth shut therefore we will tend to want to change improve do things different better etc and therefore absolutely and i think honestly that can be a double-edged sword i think that helps me a lot in the sense that i feel like my life is very meaningful because i pursue things that i feel are meaningful and <clears throat> pursue justice a lot but um it can be a very difficult way to live because sometimes things don't always pan out the way you want them to like you know i've from even just in medicine like medicine can be i'm very proud to be in this profession but it can be very it can be toxic at times and um especially with how you're treated sometimes as a, as a junior learner not in pathology at all but in when you're a med student especially there's a very big power differential between you and the people filling out your evaluations who are attending physicians and if you speak up against that injustice which i frequently did um, it can make your life very difficult they can make your life very difficult. So you kind of have to weigh the pros and cons of that. But certainly it's a, an advantage um, 
overall, I think. It's funny because the autistic sense of justice is something that I'm hearing talked about more and more. And it seems to be fairly common on people in the spectrum. To the point where it's it's certainly like sometimes it can be maladaptive, I think, just when you're... This is an example of that gone awry. So I will say overall sense of justice, autistic advantage. You are making the world a better place. You're pursuing things you think are meaningful. You're, you know, doing good in the world. Where it can go haywire, like... So I lived in a, in my second year of med school, or sorry, my first year of med school, I lived in a house where I had the main floor and then there was another tenant renting the basement floor that it was its own suite, right? And I used to burn sage. I love the smell of sage. Um, yeah, I just, it's a comforting smell. And so I seek out, as many autistic people do, I seek out certain senses and I avoid others, but smell, yeah, smell will be one area where I definitely seek out a lot of things. And um, the downstairs tenant, she texted me and said like, stop smoking marijuana and i was like i'm not um it's sage sort of explain myself um then uh that was kind of our first negative interaction and then she um so how did this start she basically would play her music really loud and i'd ask her could you like turn it down she would say no um and then she would ask me to turn the heat down because i had control of the heat and then i would say well you don't want to help give like help me when your music is playing, because I went to bed fairly early, like usually 9, 9.30. Fair enough if you don't want to turn things totally down at 10, but could you use like headphones or maybe turn on the bass? Like, can we reach a compromise? And she would be so inflexible, which is funny that I, as the autistic person, am complaining about inflexibility, but I was definitely prepared to meet her in the middle. Um, the heat. So she'd ask me to turn on the heat and I'd be like, no. And then I'd just turn it up because, well, this is like justice. I mean, you're not going to expect me to do things for you if you're not prepared to meet me in the middle. But overall on balance and um, it's also led to some really beautiful things and really beautiful relationships and friendships and outcomes in life that's probably what attracted me to medicine you've just said that being autistic had le has led to some beautiful friendships that's not a sentence that most people would expect to hear from someone who is autistic it's because the people who who i do have in my life are they've I don't keep people around if they like don't meet all the criteria. <laughs> There's just no point. So I don't have a lot of acquaintances. I have, I sort of collect one friend from each era of my life and I'll stay really close to that person. And those friendships are wonderful. And those people appreciate me for who I am and vice versa. And so I think, yeah, I mean, I think that sense of justice loosely when you have a, a set of um, standards and, and values and um, things that you need to connect on with someone as a person, it, it makes it that much more um, impactful, I think, when you do finally click with someone. I've also heard it praised as uh, we seem to be very non-judgmental, which yeah. fair enough, because right, you, you're giving me some data. We'll look at the data before I react emotionally, um, but also more trustworthy. Wow, interesting. And this is something systematically said for autistic employees, for example, that they tend to be extremely loyal, very trustworthy, though the level of uh, corruption amongst autistics is incredibly low. <laughs> One time in med school, this preceptor, she, she advised me when I'm doing an oral presentation 
I was, I was doing, I was doing an oral presentation and she cut me off after I was midway through what's called the ID statement, which is when you say like, so-and-so is a 37 year old woman. She's had two past pregnancies as she's groupie strep positive brief ID statement to explain what the person is. And then you go through the whole history and you're, you're again, it's a skill in medicine. You're presenting information orally. It's definitely never been a strength for me. I'm not a very concise person. Um, I speak very quickly. Um, sometimes I can think that things are implied when they're not. And so my, you know, intent is unclear. But anyways, she interrupts me halfway through the, the ID statement and says, in a very critical way, like not a supportive, corrective way, but like a hostile, critical way. Um, you need to fix your oral presentations. And um, I really struggled because she told me not to include certain things in the ID statement, but a preceptor several days before had told me to always include these six things. And so my brain went, okay, so I always do that. And then she was telling me something different. And I went, I, I don't understand. I think she took my, my even questioning it as like um, hostility or malice, but I was just trying to understand because I wanted to do well. And um, yeah, it's moments like that, uh, that sort of like get you into trouble. Yeah, we're called troublemakers for a reason. Assuming this episode is going to go out to parents who have just discovered that their kid is on the spectrum um, and are going to be having discussions with four-year-olds who say, I want to become a doctor, what would you like to tell those parents to tell those kids? When I was on my family medicine rotation in med school, I had a physician give me great feedback. And in the same breath, he told me he would never want an autistic child. And it was so funny. He clearly had no idea I was on the spectrum. And honestly, he wasn't a bad person. I really liked him, but it was a really unfortunate statement. But it just goes to show what, what people think about the capabilities of what autistic children could eventually go on to do. So I would definitely tell those parents that it's uh, absolutely possible and uh, not to rule anything out might be harder not because of the intelligence isn't there but because the the current framework we have it's not set up for us so it's not it's not an easy road to walk there have been very difficult moments along the way for me and honestly if i could go back and choose again it's tough because i met my partner through med school so if it's tough to be objective with this because i'm like well of course i go to med school again because if i didn't i would never meet jared but like, let's say theoretically he weren't a factor in that, I, w I probably wouldn't go back and do it again just because it's so hard. But definitely it's possible and not something I would, you know, as a parent of an autistic child, if, if I were, I, I wouldn't want to rule that out. You know, they, they could really do anything they want. Okay, so what would an autistic medical school look like? An autistic medical school instead of having lectures and small groups where you have to discuss the information, they would lay out what you need to know. And you maybe would only go in once a week and like solidify that knowledge through some kind of activity, whether that's maybe a small amount of group time or um, gosh, I don't know. But basically I, I would say most of the learning would be independent. Lectures were optional where I meant, went to med school, but um, certain things you still had to attend. So Let's say there, I would keep the communications training the same because you still need that. I would keep the physical exam teaching the same. So you could go in for those practical things where you actually need help to learn like concrete skills, but maybe the actual like book learning part, just let people figure out what works for them. The theory, let us absorb it on, a, on, a, on our own. So my medical school was three years. It wasn't four. So no summers off straight through. Um, 
obviously for me it was four years because I took the year off between first and second year but for most people including my fiance who went to the same medical school as me it was three years for him most med schools are four years I would say ideally they would be like five or six years and most people would probably just like hate that I'm even saying this because it's already such a long arduous training but if you could cover the same material but maybe spread it out a little bit more if we're talking like purely autistic medical school i think that would be something that would help autistic people thrive just give them longer to learn the material let it sink in um we need generally more time to rest and recoup i would say so um a program that demands you know 14 16 hours a day uh, of dedicated time is maybe just not something that would be helpful okay so this is the uh, the last one i promise what advice would you have for your younger self I would tell younger me that hardship is inevitable, but to treat myself like I would someone I love. JJ, thank you so much for sharing with us your story on this podcast, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. You can learn more about JJ Mrachek by following her on LinkedIn. Remember to follow the Autistic Advantage podcast on Instagram and LinkedIn for new episodes. Our next guest is Hannah Breslin, Educational Developer for the University of the Arts London, and that episode will be released August 1st. That's it from the Autistic Advantage podcast. Our team includes Production Director Harvey Range, Community Director Ben Van Hook, Creative Director Kaya Williams, and I'm your host, Olivia Fox. See you next time.